by now your Bibles, hopefully like mine, just kind of automatically open to that portion. The Sermon on the Mount, we're going through the model prayer, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, starting in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to need to do a little bit of review to kind of ramp up where we left off. Um, my heart's desire as we go through this is to do exactly what this first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, is that we would accurately interpret the Word of God and hallow God's name as we go through this. That's my desire. Verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's the first of, I believe, six petitions in this prayer, a model prayer that we are to use to model our prayers after. And this first petition is about God's name to be adored. And the first three petitions concern God's desires what God wants done or what is important to our God. And we're asking him to act on his own behalf. The first three petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so the model prayer starts with the person of God, his work, before it even mentions what we need or desire. Think about your prayers. Are they modeled that way? How often we rush into God's presence with a list of all the things that we need or want, and we forget who we're praying to. And so we need to start with God and not ourselves. Our desire should be that God's desires, his will, is done. Like David, remember we talked about David being a man after God's own heart. That ought to be our desire, to want what God wants. We defined what it means, hallowed be thy name, means to sanctify, means to make and keep holy, or to consider holy, to treat as sacred. And so we are holding God as set apart from all else, and he is absolutely and eternally holy. And so we're asking that God be regarded as holy and that he would make himself known as holy, as set apart from all others. And so, of course, in the petition is the desire that that would happen, but also within the petition is that we would acknowledge God as being holy and regard him as holy. And so we're asking God to hallow his own name, uh, to set himself apart as sacred and holy, that he would get the honor and glory that is so much, that so much belongs to him, that what he does and how he acts would produce respect and awe and reverence. And so this should be something we pray from our heart. 
And as we do, asking God to hallow his name, that we would hallow his name as well. We also talked about what the opposite of, of to hallow means. And we went to Numbers chapter 20, where Moses was told by God to speak to the rock. And what did he do? Totally ignored that. Struck the rock twice. Water came out. God still honored that. But he says, you did not hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Moses took credit for that which God did. Moses did not obey God. And he actually called God's people rebels. And the Bible says that Moses did not hallow God's name. He profaned God's name. And then we talked about this idea of a name. Uh, everybody remember what my nickname was? Fearless, Searless. We tend to attach more meaning to nicknames than we do our regular surnames. But uh, my nickname in gymnastics was Fearless, Searless. And so the Jewish people often had names that were somehow bound up with them as a person. And names meant a lot more to them than they do to us today. And we talked about, you know, what, is it, what does a name mean? We talked about zenith. The quality goes in before the name goes on. We talked about Rolex watches and, of course, that one type of car that, you know, I'm not even allowed to touch, a Rolls Royce. There's a lot in that name. The Jewish people had a lot of respect for the name of God, so much so that they wouldn't even utter that name. And when scribes who were copying the scriptures, they would get up, wash themselves, then come back and write the name of God, Jehovah. God reveals himself through his names. He doesn't want us to be superstitious about his name. But the Jewish people had taken it, as usual, probably a little bit too far. We need to hallow God's name. Now, the tense and the meaning of this petition, I think, is where we left off last time. This is an aorist imperative, which shows that it's a single event or action in point of time. It's not repeated action. Uh, the Greek language is very specific when it comes to its verbs, and an aorist imperative shows uh, uh, an event or an action in point of time, not something that happens over and over and over again. And so it could be referring to an event. I think it is referring to an actual event. Uh, it could be referring to God bringing people in their individual lives to a proper attitude towards him and reverence of him. That could be an understanding of this aorist imperative. But we are requesting, when we are praying this, it is our desire that God would once and for all hallow his name. And it goes right along with the next two petitions. Let's not take it out of context. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They all three seem to go in together, and they seem to be speaking of one event that's going to happen in the future. Now, how did God hallow his name in the past? There's 
God has in the past used methods to hallow his name that seem strange to us. Sometimes God even allowed the enemies of righteousness and his enemies, and the enemies of God's people, to prosper for a time. God's people have been persecuted and God's name for a time maligned and profaned, but in the end, and on God's own timetable, his name was hallowed, and his name will be hallowed. The point is, is when we pray something like this, we need to remember that we're leaving it to God as to where, when, and how he will hallow his name. I want to take some time keeping this in its Jewish context. When a Jewish person heard, Hallowed be thy name, asking God to sanctify himself, to sanctify his name, their minds would have gone back to certain passages of Scripture. Because there are numerous times in the Old Testament where God has promised to hallow his name. And I want to take some time to look at a couple of these. We're going to go book, back to the book of Ezekiel. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 20. And I do want you to turn here to see these. Ezekiel chapter 20. Verse 41. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 41. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the peoples. He's talking about the regathering of the people of Israel. And gather you out of the countries in which you have been scattered, and I will be sanctified. I will be set apart. I will be recognized as holy in you before the nations. Now you can read the context, and I think I did go over this the last time, but it's talking about the regathering of the people of Israel. Look at chapter 28, verse 25. Chapter 28, verse 25. Along the same thing, the same theme, thus saith the Lord God, when I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the nations, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell safely in it and shall build houses and plant vineyards. Yea, they shall dwell with confidence when I have executed judgments upon all those that despise them round about them, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. God's going to hallow his name by regathering the people of Israel to the land which he had promised to give to their forefathers. Look at chapter 36. Chapter 36. Verse 23. Actually, I'm going to read an extended portion here. Verses 22 through 38. Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not do this for your sakes, 
O house of Israel. But why? For mine holy name's sake, which he have profaned among the nations to which he went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, and gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep mine ordinances and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the, for the grain and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the nations. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Verse 32, not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be built, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it will lay desolate in the sight of all that pass by. And they shall say, the land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste Desolate and ruined cities are become fortified and are inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant ditch that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock, as the holy flock as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now I can take you to Ezekiel 38, 16, Ezekiel 39, 27, but the theme is the same. God is going to hallow his name by regathering the people of Israel, ethnic Israel, into their land. And he's going to pour out his spirit upon them so that the entire nation of Israel will be saved. How do I know that? Because the very next chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37, you know the, the chapter. It's called the Valley of Dry Bones. God chose the nation of Israel. And it is through the nation of Israel that we have the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is through the nation of Israel that we have the scriptures that you hold in your lap. And there's coming a day 
when they will look on him whom they have pierced, and Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of the air, and the dry bones that were dead. Let's read it. Verse 30, chapter 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of, a, of the valley which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. What does that mean? They'd been dead for a long time. No hope of life. He said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And we're talking about a miracle here. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man. Say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded. And the breath came into them, and they lived. They stood up upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dry and our hope is lost. We are cut off on our part. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. The theme is the same. The regathering of the people of Israel to the land that was promised to them. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live. And I shall place you in your own land, and ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Can I just say this? God has linked his name, his reputation, his character to the fulfilling of these promises to the nation of Israel. Now let me show you the New Testament version of this. Turn to Romans chapter 9, if you would please. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are very important to understand. And what Paul is really discussing here and working his way through as he writes the book of Romans is what is going on with the nation of Israel? Why are they not responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why are they not being saved? Verse 3, Paul says in verse chapter 9, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
Just look, all this has happened. All the promises, the prophecies, the scriptures. Israel has been involved in this from the very beginning. Why are they not responding to the gospel? And then Paul goes on to explain in chapter 9 that they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. There's, there's spiritual Israel, and then there's ethnic or physical Israel. Those who are the true sons of Abraham by faith are, are the Israelites who have been circumcised in heart. They are the elect of God. They have turned to Christ. But there are so very few of them as compared to the Gentiles. You go on through chapter 9 and uh, Paul writes that there's going to be Gentiles saved. You get into uh, the end of um, chapter 9. He says, but Israel, verse 31, who followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith. In other words, they're not being saved because they're approaching it the wrong way. You get into chapter 10, a wonderful uh, uh, chapter. Uh, he starts out, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The theme through this whole thing is why is Israel not being saved? Why are not, they not responding to Christ, accepting their own Messiah? Chapter 11. Paul asked the question, hath God cast away his people? I mean, that's what it seems like. And even in our day, we could ask the same question. Has God cast away the nation of Israel? God forbid, may it never be, for I also am an Israelite. And of course, this was a theme that was near and dear to Paul's heart. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Verse 2, know ye not that what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, Lord, they've done all these things, they've killed your prophets, dug down thine altars. The answer to Elijah was, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Among the, the ethnic, physical people of Israel, God had reserved an elect people, those who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul says in verse 5, even so, at this present time, there's also a remnant according to the election of grace. Those that have been chosen as God's people to be part of the church as uh, Paul is understanding it. Verse 7, What then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election obtained it. And notice this, and the rest were what? Blinded. Blinded. Start in verse 13 of chapter 11. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy them who are my flesh, meaning the Israelites, and might save some of them. Again, understand chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about salvation through faith in Christ. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now what is Paul talking about? Numerous ways this has been looked at. The idea here is there's one people of God. 
experiencing the blessings that God had promised to Abraham. And the nation of Israel, who did not turn to Christ, who was the promised seed of the woman, and follow all the prophecies through the Old Testament, the Messiah, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And because they turned away their Messiah, Jesus Christ, God blinded them, broke them off of the tree. And the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. And they were grafted into that tree. Now notice what Paul says to us Gentiles. Boast not against the branches, verse 18. But thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Don't gloat. Don't have ill words towards the nation of Israel. Because the only reason you are grafted into their tree is because they did not believe. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. Goodness towards us, severe towards the nation of Israel. On them who fell, severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. They also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. Here's the important part. For God is able to graft them in again. God is not through with the nation of Israel. For if thou wert cut off out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, were grafted in contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, the natural branches, the nation of Israel, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? We need to remember this. It's their tree, not ours. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Mystery means something that was true in the Old Testament, but it is now being revealed. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part, that means that not the entire nation of Israel is blind, because there was an elect, according to chapter 9, is happened to Israel. Why? Why did God blind his own people? Why did he break them off of the tree? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. God will one day deal with the nation of Israel again when the last Gentile has been saved. Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. When Jesus Christ appears, and I believe Brother Will said we can't definitely give a particular uh, point in time, 
you know, the, the Bible doesn't specify exactly when it will happen. But John, in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, says they will look on him whom they have pierced. When Christ comes again, the entire nation will turn to their Messiah. Think about that. The people who have been scattered among the nations like dry bones. Christ returns. He pours out his spirit. And they come to Christ corporately. The nations are defeated. One of the chapters in the book of Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 38, verse 16, talks about the, the armies of the nations coming from the north to come into uh, unwalled or, or unfenced and unwalled cities to take a spoil, meaning uh, the Russia and her confederates and everybody's coming to the, to the land of Israel. And God himself is going to fight against them and defeat them. He says, I'm going to be sanctified in the nations. And there's a lot going on in the end times, but keep this in mind. This is what's going to happen. God's going to save Israel. God's going to put his spirit in them. He's going to regather them into the land that he promised to them. And he's going to hallow his name. Is it any wonder? I don't know if I can make it through this. Is it any wonder after Paul goes through these three chapters and he gets to verse 33 and he writes, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? Nobody. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is looking at this and saying, God, I don't understand your plan. I don't understand why Israelites are not being saved. And he looks at that and he says, oh, they're broken off. And you're bringing Gentiles into that tree. And you're saving a multitude of Gentiles. And the saving of all of these Gentiles are going to provoke Israel to jealousy. And when they see their Messiah, they're going to turn to him corporately and God's going to plant them in his their land that he promised sometimes we get it wrong and we think that we're the most important people in God's plan as the church can I show you something that shows how important God's people are to him turn to Revelation chapter 21 I was going through the book of Revelation recently, and I came across this, and it was like, wow. Wow. Revelation chapter 21 is talking about the, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, verse 9.
In verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God and her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, uh, clear as crystal. It had a great wall, a wall great and high, had 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. Now, we've heard about the new Jerusalem. We look forward to going to heaven. But there's two, can I say, groups of people who are represented in the New Jerusalem. There's 12 gates. Whose names are written on the gates? The 12 tribes of Israel. And there's 12 foundations to the city or the wall. And whose names are written on that? The 12 apostles. Even in the New Jerusalem, we see this idea of the olive tree in Romans chapter 11. Both people, Jews and Gentiles, represented there. And I firmly believe that the 24 elders that we see earlier in the book of Revelation, who fall down and worship the Lamb, casting their crowns before the Lamb. I believe that they are the 12 apostles and representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. Because God wants us to know we're not more important than Israel. Neither is Israel more important than us as the Lamb, the bride's wife. Probably didn't say that right, but Got the idea. How is God going to hallow his name? He's going to keep saving Gentiles till the last Gentile is saved. We go through that tribulation period. There's all sorts of Gentiles being saved in the tribulation period. But there's 144,000 witnesses of uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're going to be proclaiming the gospel. And one day Christ is going to come with the clouds of the air as he went up into heaven in the ascension. The ascension. And all of Israel is going to be saved. And we're going to go into the millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about in the next phrase of the model prayer, the millennial kingdom. The land is going to be split up between the 12 tribes of Israel Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. Israel's going to become the head of the nations, and everybody's going to come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ. And we will rule and reign with Christ. Both entities, the church, Gentile believers, predominantly, and Israel, represented in the new Jerusalem. That's how God is going to hallow his name. And what a time that's going to be. And that ought to be our desire for that to take place. The whole purpose of this petition is that God would accomplish his plan. John MacArthur said, to, 
this encompasses all of God's nature, all of man's response to his nature. It isn't religious routine or just nice thoughts about God. It opens up a whole dimension of respect, reverence, awe, appreciation, honor, glory, adoration, and worship. And did we not just see that from the Apostle Paul in the ending of Romans chapter 11? That ought to be our response as well. That God in all of his person, all of his works will be glorified, sanctified, reverenced, and served with reverential awe. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it is the expression of a burning and deep desire for the honor and glory of God. God's not done with us. He's still grafting in to that tree. And God's not done with Israel either. D.A. Carson said that this expresses an aspiration that he who is holy will be seen to be holy and treated throughout his creation as holy. God never lies, and he will fulfill all of his promises. Well, the question remains then, the few minutes I have left, how can we hallow God's name today? I want to apply this to us because even though we're praying that God would take care of the nation of Israel and save them and take care, uh, fulfill all of his promises and prophecies, there is still a desire, should be a desire within us to hallow God's name. So let me give you a number of things, a number of items of how we can hallow God's name. Number one, acknowledge and believe that he is and live like it. Now, a lot of us will acknowledge and believe that he is, but we sometimes fail to live like it. In practice, we can become Christian atheists. We need to, as Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Do you, on a daily basis, seek God? A daily basis, do you seek God? Number two, how can we hallow God's name? We can have a true and accurate knowledge of who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. We must have a true and accurate knowledge of who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. Origen said, the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place there takes the name of the Lord in vain. That's pretty strong language. We cannot, if we're going to hollow God, we cannot have false ideas of the sovereign God. That would be irreverence 
Now, I could extend this sermon and go into all sorts of false ideas that people have that are irreverent of God. I'll leave that to you. John MacArthur, probably one of the best quotes that I found on this petition, said, Discovering and believing truth about God demonstrates reverence for him. Willing ignorance or wrong doctrine demonstrates irreverence. Wow. We cannot hallow God's name if we do not know him. We do not even care to know him and all of his person and all of his fullness. Any thoughts or ideas that are held to the, about God and his person or his work that diminishes who he is and what he does, that is irreverence. That is not hallowing God's name. Number three. We need to be constantly aware of his presence in our daily lives. Constantly aware of his presence in our daily lives. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. I got convicted of this some years ago. And my life was probably no different than everybody else's life in here. Get up in the morning, spend some time in the word and prayer, close my Bible, walk out the door, and never have a thought about God the entire rest of the day. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, don't be so sanctimonious here. I got so convicted. I was reading some really good books at the time, and I got so convicted. I had one of those watches wasn't very expensive, but I could set it to chime. People don't wear watches today, you know. But I had one of those watches that you could set to chime every hour on the hour. And I did it on purpose. And I went through my day, and when that chime went off, I briefly prayed in remember of God's presence with me through that day. Every hour while I was at work, I did that. It was a really great exercise to fulfill Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me. You see, we can forget about God's presence with us. We go through our day. We know he's helping us. In the back of our minds, we know he's there. But we don't think about him. We certainly don't pray. Maybe you're different than I was, but I was really convicted. Number four, we need to obey his will and become like him. In other words, we need to live a holy life. We need to live a holy life. We need to bring our lives in conformity to God's moral law. And all the admonitions in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all 
for the glory of God. I was in charge of painting the church, the Christian school where I was working. And we would go through and, you know, different things were done in different summers, but this particular summer we had to paint the rooms and paint the door frames of every classroom. And when I started preparing the door frames for the, the um, oil paint that I was going to use on that metal door frame, I noticed that the top edge of the door frame, which was, you know, anywhere from uh, probably a quarter inch to three-eighths of an inch, had not been painted in years. I mean, it still had, the, like, the original color. And I could see other colors there and, you know, chipped away or whatever. As you were standing on the floor looking at the door frame, you couldn't tell that the top edge was not painted. Not only that, it was a very difficult edge to try to paint. Everybody paint with oil paint before, you know, an edge like this up against the wall. It was difficult. And I remember, you know, I had some high schoolers around with me, and they were involved in other projects as, as well in the classroom. And I was up there taking my time to paint that top edge. And one of the high schoolers asked me, why are you painting that? Nobody can see it without even thinking about it. Now, this is about the same time as I'm trying to consider God's presence throughout the day. Without even thinking about it, I said, but God can see it. And if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it for his glory. Do all to the glory of God. That's not just preaching, leading the songs, doing children's church, teaching a Sunday school lesson. Ladies, it's when you're cleaning your home or cooking a meal. You're doing that for the glory of God. Men, you're doing your jobs for the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. We need to obey his will. We need to uh, become like him. We need to be holy in our lives. That means that everything we do is sacred. Second Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who those who are his, and let every everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you name the name of Christ, you need to depart from iniquity. Jesus asked the people standing around in Luke 6.46, But why do you call me Lord and do not the things which I say? We can't hallow God's name if we're not living in obedience to him and striving to have a holy life. We need to be perfect, even as our Father who is in heaven is perfect. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Next, to hallow God's name means that we're going to attract other people to the Lord, and we're going to lift God up in the world, and we're going to make God appear great in the eyes of others. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and the result would be what? That they will glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Psalm 34, 3, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. That's what we're to do. Next, we hallow God's name when we have a high appreciation of him 
and set him highest in our thoughts. What's your thought life like? Is God at the center of your thoughts? Of course, Psalm 33, 21 says that we are hallowing God's name when we are trusting him. Come what may in our lives, we're trusting God no matter what. If we're going to hallow God's name, we need to never, ever make mention of him without the highest reverence and respect. Folks, let me just give you a situation. Something happens in your lives, and one of the questions we ask is, why did God allow this to me? Is that mentioning God with the highest reverence and respect? No. Leviticus chapter 10, you've got strange fire that was offered to the Lord. And in verse 3, talks about that we need to give him a holy and spiritual worship. Nothing strange before the Lord. Next, if we're going to honor and hallow God, we need to hallow his day. He has set apart this day as a day of worship. We need to honor God on his day. And then last, well, second to last, we need to stand up for his truth. That is lacking today. Men who will stand up for God's truth and proclaim it without apology. And then my last one is this. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to pray that God would take care of his people, Israel. And we need to pray that they would be saved and that God would actually fulfill that request in their lives. Because that day is coming. And what a day that's going to be. Father, hallow your name. May your kingdom come and may you accomplish your will on this earth as you do in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name.